Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Stephen Hupp will join us to discuss the great myths of child development. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. the Grok's Science Show. Well, parenting in the modern age can be a daunting challenge. The amount of information and misinformation can drive any well-meaning parent up the wall. Well, what are the biggest parenting misconceptions? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Stephen Hupp. Professor Hupp is a professor of clinical child and school psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. Dr. Hupp is a licensed clinical psychologist and consultant for the East St. Louis Head Start program. He is the author of numerous scientific works and has just co-authored a release, The Great Myths of Child Development, in which he uh, explores some of these uh, issues of child development and some of the myths of child development. And Professor Hupp, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. I'm very excited to be on the show. Certainly a pleasure and certainly a, a fascinating book filled with myth-busting uh, misconceptions uh, about child development. I'm curious why you decided to write the book. Well, uh, as you said, I'm a psychologist, but I'm also a parent. I've got two kids, a boy and a girl. And just as a parent, you get exposed to all kinds of science about child development, but you also get exposed to a lot of pseudoscience about child development. And so I thought it would be useful to write a book for parents, step-parents, foster parents, grandparents, soon-to-be parents, and anyone else skeptical of parenting poppycock to help them figure out the science from the pseudoscience. So uh, before you wrote the book, were you aware of many of these misconceptions, or were you just as lost as many of us? Oh, I think I started off very lost, and uh, sometimes still I feel lost uh, as I go. But there were certain things that I knew were myths going in, and then certain things that maybe kind of stuck in my craw a little bit, but I hadn't really done the research on, and other ones we just kind of uncovered along the way. One uh, that stands out for me is I've just always heard the idea of the terrible twos, you know, that when kids turn two years old, uh, their behavior is particularly terrible. So I was kind of surprised when my son was only one and he was already demonstrating some terrible behavior. I thought, oh, he must be advanced because he's already entered this stage. But then I hear other people on the backside of it. They say, oh, my two-year-old was fine, but my three-year-old or four-year-old or five-year-old, that's when they started having problems. Just recently, Kanye West said he went through terrible twos when he was 35 years old. And so we said do the research to see our, our behavior problems any worse at a certain age. And as it turns out, it's common for kids to have some behavior problems at every age, but two isn't particularly terrible compared to other ages. So yeah, one of the topics we talked about in the book is baby walkers, you know, those little wheeled devices that you put your little baby in and their feet just barely touch the ground and they can move around. And I think a lot of people assume that baby walkers speed up the walking process. And I really didn't know if they worked or not, so I decided to look at the research. And there's several good studies on this that pretty clearly show that baby walkers do not speed up walking. And if anything, they might actually slow it up just a little bit. Uh, what about uh, all those stimulating videos that people try and use to boost babies' intelligence? 
Yeah, when my both both my kids were babies, we we bought into those uh, baby Einstein videos. There's a whole series of different videos that are fun shapes and stuff for kids to look at and listen to Mozart's music while while they're watching these shapes. And uh, you know, my kids were interested in watching it, but. Some people use it with the idea that it's going to make their baby more intelligent, and they, sometimes the marketing makes it sound like they're educational programming. And we looked at the research. We really couldn't find any evidence that these work to make babies any smarter. What about use baby talk with infants? People think that that might delay their ability to speak normally. Yeah, that was another one. I really wasn't too sure going into it, so we looked at the research, and more than anything, I get exposed to people that are kind of talking negatively about baby talk, so like Neil Patrick Harris recently said he wouldn't talk down to his babies using baby talk, and his parents didn't talk to him using baby talk when he was a baby, although I'm not sure if he can really remember when he was a baby. So we decided to look at the research, is baby talk harmful, and the research shows uh, it it actually is not harmful. Uh, babies actually pay more attention to baby talk. Uh, and so people, the researchers are really either concluding that it's neutral if you use baby talk or maybe even positive. I, I guess I should have defined baby talk. It's just really talking to a baby in any way that's different than how you might talk to an adult. And there's lots of different ways we might do that. Hmm. Perhaps one of the big ones to take a look at here is this major uh, controversy is whether or not vaccines cause the rise in autism. Yeah, I mean, that's in the news a lot in different, in the, for different reasons. Like we've got celebrities or some celebrities that have said that vaccines cause autism. There's a very small number of doctors that have agreed with the celebrities over the years and have really, I think, been a bigger part of the problem than the celebrities. But there have been many, many studies on this with hundreds of thousands of children, some of which have had vaccines and some of which who haven't. And research is very clear that kids who get vaccines are no more likely to get autism. And so this is good evidence of how myths can actually be harmful because as we've seen with this recent measles outbreak in Disneyland, not getting a vaccine is very dangerous. You can get the measles or the mumps or rubella or, or whatever else the different vaccines are for. The book actually has about 50 of these myths. I'm curious, which ones of these do you think are myths that every parent really needs to pay attention to? Well, I mean, the vaccine's up there in importance. The Baby Walker one, I didn't talk about it, but uh, baby walkers can be dangerous. Uh, they're actually banned in Canada because of the of, of the dangers associated with them. Babies can walk down the stairs or bump into tables that knock stuff over onto them. So I think parents should be really cautious about baby walkers. Some of the myths are more fun and, and not as much harm can come from them. So like we we talk about this myth of twin telepathy, that identical twins, some people believe, have this special telepathic connection. One twin feels pain or, you know, gets hurt, and then the other twin feels their pain in the other room. That one's probably fair, fairly benign, but even that one kind of feeds into this conception that people have that there's skills like telepathy or that psychics have special powers. And a lot of people actually end up getting swindled uh, out of money because of psychics. And so even myths like that, I think, are important for people to recognize. Uh, which ones of these myths are probably the most prevalent among parents? Um, well, I got my data right here. The number one believed one, I collected data on these, was that the attachment parenting approach strengthens the mother-infant bond. 
And so I had 83% of parents we surveyed agreed with that statement. They might not have all known exactly what attachment parenting was, but it sounded good to them. And they probably have come in contact with it. It's something that's promoted by William Sears and celebrities like Mayim Bialik. And we look at the research on attachment parenting, and uh, there's actually very little, uh, but there's none to suggest it promotes attachment. Attachment parenting is kind of a big philosophy. It's got several key components, but like one one of the components is uh, using extended breastfeeding. So in the book, we make the point that breastfeeding is a, is a great thing to do if you can do it. It is, uh, promotes health in different ways. But in attachment parenting, they promote breastfeeding for three years or four years or five years or six years or seven years in some cases with the idea that it's going to build attachment over time. And to my mind, we're really starting to stretch it once we get past a couple of years. Uh, this is similar to another uh, myth you have in there that babies need a bond almost immediately with their mother after birth in order to have a strong attachment. Or... Yeah, that's actually another one of the components of attachment parenting, this high importance placed on immediate birth bonding. That The idea is that if, if mother and baby can't bond within the first hour, then their attachment, their, their relationship is going to have lifelong damage, and it can lead to, quote, mothering disorders. And there's really no research to support this notion. I'm all for giving moms and babies a chance to spend time together right after the birth, but sometimes it's not possible due to medical reasons, and parents shouldn't be made to feel guilty if for some reason, or distraught if for some reason, you know, baby has to be whisked into another room. Uh, what about uh, some of the myths, uh, for example, like an only child? Uh, is an only child more likely to be selfish or, or spoiled? Well, uh, that's a myth I've always heard, and I'm an only child, so I took issue with that. Uh, but because I was so biased, I asked my co-author, Dr. Jeremy Jewell, to, to write that chapter so he could be a little bit less biased because he's not an only child. And uh, he looked at the research. Uh, I looked at it after him. And really, research shows that only children are not they're not more selfish, more spoiled, or lonely than, than kids with siblings. It's a myth propagated in the media a lot. Uh, we, we found like a I think it was a New York Times article about Snooky uh, from the Jersey Shore, and she's an only child, and they kind of made that connection between her being an only child and if you're familiar with Snooky, she's got kind of a spoiled demeanor. So uh, that, that was a myth propagated there. I'm trying to find a case to prove your point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not to say uh, that uh, all only children are able to avoid being spoiled, but the, the point is they're not any more likely to be spoiled. Fair enough. Generally, then, if you have multiple siblings, is, is birth order a, a predictor of child's personality? So uh, some uh, outlets in psychology play birth order up like it's a very powerful predictor of personality. So it, it can show up as a factor that affects personality, some traits in some small ways, but it's really not a very powerful predictor at all. And do you find that fathers versus mothers are more likely to use corporal punishment? That was one that was kind of surprising to me. I guess I've always had in my mind the idea that fathers spank more than mothers. You can kind of hear, always hear that phrase, just wait till your father gets home. Uh, and um, it just this is just a, a fact that kind of came up while we were researching the book that we found some research to show that mothers actually are more likely to be uh, the spankers than fathers. And uh, another one is called for, uh, if you spare the rod, will you spoil the child? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of times when people debate the spanking issue, they kind of debate whether or not a spanking is harmful. Uh, we didn't really take that tact so much as we just looked at if you, if you don't spank a child, does that guarantee that they're going to, you know, have more problems or, or be spoiled in some way? And we, we were able to show in the research that uh, kids, a lot of kids can not be spanked and be just fine. That's not to say you should use no discipline, but as long as you have some form of discipline in, in place, there's a great chance that, that kids will be in good shape. Uh, what, what about this notion that kids these days that are just way too overpraised and this is just undermining kids' abilities to be uh, resilient and successful? Yeah, topic. We didn't spend a lot of time in the book. I think if we do another edition, I'd like to expand more on what we did because I think it's a really rich area. Sometimes there's research that comes out where, you know, there's a small group of parents that are just way overpraising everything, and I, I do think we should be cautious about that. But what we're really focused on that praise is quite often a very helpful thing, and uh, we do want parents to use praise, but like anything, it should be done uh, in moderation and not overused. The end of the book with probably the one that uh, everyone has said for generations for generation is that things were different when I was a kid. Parents were not permissive when I was a kid. Is that, is that true or not? <laughs> yeah, it kind of that, and it kind of goes along with this idea that, that kids' behavior is worse these days. And it, when you go back and look at literature for centuries, that's two things you'll always hear people complain about: is is kids' behavior is worse right now, and now we've got this new problem of permissive parenting. We've got quotes in our book from several different decades part where the person making the quote is saying, oh, parents are so permissive these days, but they weren't when I was a kid. And uh, the fact is there probably have always been permissive parents uh, to some degree, and there always will be. Well, the book is, is really a fascinating look at all these myths of child development. We certainly don't have time to go through them all, but I'm curious if uh, maybe just a summary of findings and maybe just the gestalt of the book, what would you like people to just kind of take away from uh, reading the book? Well, did a good job of covering a, a bunch of the myths. I probably talked about half of them here. So there's a bunch more. Um, one of the kind of threads throughout the book is that human beings, we just have a nature to make a connection between two things that we think are related. And sometimes that connection is right, but a lot of times that connection that we make uh, misleads us. And so uh, there's a lot of different sources for why people believe these myths. And we continued to discuss those uh, throughout the book. So some examples would be like just word of mouth, something you hear a lot, or something you hear in the media from a celebrity. We tend to give more weight to that. And so wherever possible, we try to find some of the sources that are contributing to these myths that uh, all parents have, uh, at least to some degree, including myself. And I just can't wait to find out what the next myth I currently believe is. I think probably a lot more out there, or probably enough for uh, for another book. Uh, yeah, well, we're trying to push to have them let us write a book called Great Myths of Adolescent Development, which is the age range my kids are about to enter. We'll send our prayers uh, to, to you. <laughs> you survive that. Thank All you so much. All right. Well, the, the new book is called uh, Great Myths of Child Development. Here against Professor Stephen Hupp and with his co-author Jeremy Jewell. And Professor Hupp, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks so much. I like being on the science show. And uh, today I kind of turned it into the pseudo-science show for you, but uh, just really happy to be part of it. Again, we thank you very much for your time and best of luck with your book. Thanks. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. 
And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.